This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, the digital front door to general practice. I certainly don't have to tell this audience that good IT is absolutely central to efficient working in complex environments. The data is really important to have the data. If you've got the data, you've got a chance of getting the resources. Digital asynchronous consulting systems, really, really terrible name. I'm utterly delighted by how bad it is. Hello, you're very welcome to another Snug podcast in which we explore the numerous ways in which we can use technology and information systems to provide better healthcare. I'm Andrew McElhinney, a GP in Central Scotland. You can find out more about the Scottish National Users Group at snughealth.org.uk. And if you're in a GP practice in Scotland, find resources, including videos, podcasts and other support as we discuss and debate the current IT-related issues facing general practice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Google Podcasts and also wherever you found us from today. So what is the digital front door? And so the digital front door is, is using technology to engage the patient, to give them access to services at the health organization. When we think about the digital front door, we're talking about the touch points that a customer engages with across their care journey. I'm Lauren. I'm Ben. I'm Aaron. I'm Dion, and I use the NHS app. It's owned and run by the NHS. It helps me to manage my condition and book appointments. I can renew medications on shift. 24-7. All my repeat medication is on the app, and I select the ones I need when I need. There's a fantastic service on it called a symptom checker. It gives me gold standard NHS information at my fingertips. Download the NHS app. That clip is about the NHS app, which has been introduced in England. Patients in Scotland don't have that. We do have NHS Inform. It doesn't yet provide as many options as the NHS app does, but it's definitely looking in that direction. Telecare is available from all 32 local authorities, and the self-check tool can direct you to your local area. In a nutshell, it is access to help at the press of a button. But for most patients, the first port of call when they're looking for healthcare is their general practice. Unfortunately, that usually involves trying to get through on the telephone. Your call is important to us. Please press hash to continue. Your call has been placed in queue. Our call center is now closed. There'll be short wait. Your call is important to us. Your call is important to us. <laughs> yeah, we all know how rewarding it is being in a telephone queue. So, increasingly, GP practices are using their websites to provide the sorts of services the NHS app brings together, like being able to book appointments, order repeat prescriptions, check symptoms, and get direction to the best source of help. At the May Snug Members' Day, many of these sort of new developments were discussed. Today in the podcast, we're delighted to have some highlights from two of the most interesting sessions. First, we hear from Matt Horton. Matt is a GP in England with a number of different roles, and he described how GP practices in England have coped during the pandemic. He was introduced by David Cooper. 
So Matt is a GP down in Clevedon between Bristol and Western Supermare, and he has many, many other strings. Um, GP um, clinical research specialty lead and clinical divisional lead for the National Institute for Health Research in the West of England, uh, RCGP Severn faculty co-chair. He was the previous medical director for various RCGP projects and uh, a clinical advisor for NHSX. So I will hand over to him. Enjoy. Thanks, David. I really appreciate uh, that introduction and thanks for inviting me. I, I would like to recognise the huge impact and the work that all practices have put across the UK. In Scotland, that you've had your own challenges, you've still got ongoing challenges. Particularly Matt described how general practices now make a lot more use of remote access, have a lot more webcams, and how in particular e-prescribing and asynchronous consulting have taken off. There are a lot of similarities to what has been happening in Scotland, but also a couple of key differences. Pre-pandemic, we had remote access of about two people who were interested in remote access, but very few people really doing that other than people trying to catch up on paperwork. And now we've got at least 30 people with remote access. We've now have eight laptops externally. We didn't have any webcams when we started. In fact, I managed to buy the last three webcams from um, PC World when we were up against fighting with businesses also trying to get webcams but we had when we started the pandemic we just managed to get three webcams now we've got 24. EPS electronic prescribing went up, shot up through the roof we moved everything to EPS and moved a lot of people on to repeat dispensing and our Acurix users Acurix has proved to be one of the things in our practice which has has really helped us as um, uh, it, it, David was saying about asynchronous consultation being able to um, engage with patients with SMS messaging, with uh, text messaging, uh, with photos, exchanging, getting photos back and also doing video consultations. Because we were able to use our phones and it wasn't giving our, our um, phone numbers away using the, this system, it allowed us to use video consultations without webcams. So it's a really important uh, weapon in a tool in, in managing the early days of COVID. Uh, this was a dashboard when we first started. We had dashboards every day. I'm sure you had similar things. Uh, and this was, we had uh, everywhere we started collecting data. We started having daily sit reps, and then there were PCN sit reps, trying to work out where the problems were and how we could tackle it. And this was instigated by our practice manager. And every morning we had an eight, sorry, 7.30 to 8.30 uh, briefing on what was happening because it was changing at such fast speed as we reacted to try and keep patients and our staff safe. That's all settled down now, but uh, we're still trying to do things within practice such as social lunch, social distancing lunches, just to keep people going and keep the morale going. And now I'm gonna focus on what's happened within NHS in England. So this is the context of general practice in England. We've got just under 7,000 practices, and this is going. This is probably the same in Scotland, getting smaller. We're getting more consolidation in practices. Practices are get, generally getting bigger. We've got these things called primary care networks and CCGs, clinical commissioning groups, which I think are similar to your health boards. Um, we've got 35,000 GPs, 135,000 staff, and we've got 60 million patients. And we now have... Um, much more data on our appointments. We've been collecting data using a thing called GP data, GP practice appointment data. Uh, and we've just uh, done a lot around trying to standardize the way appointments are collected so that we can see from, we used to look at this, view this data on a monthly basis. 
but uh, NHS England has been being able to now look at the almost on a daily basis to actually see the impact of what's been happening in primary care. There's 1.1 billion prescriptions per year and there's about six, 600 million IT spend per annum. I work for NHSX, which is formed in 2019 and which is designed to help transform care, drive forward digital transformation in health and uh, social care. And predominantly, I have been involved in healthcare, but during this pandemic, opportunities really arose around what to do around social care. And I think this pandemic has exposed to me the real differences between health and social care provision, and particularly with IT support. We're currently seeing monthly just under half a million patients' appointments are being booked online. Prescriptions are being ordered about just under five million, and we've now got um, nearly six million patients with access to their GP records. And we're increasingly trying to get the patients having online access as well as getting access to their records. Uh, and this has been slow. We've been giving them uh, parts of their record and we're, we're expanding that as we go along. This is a slide which was important in 2018. Um, we had a plan that was going to take us over the next two to three years. And this was trying to get more remote working, we were trying to get NHS 111 uh, booking into GP practices, SMS messaging, video consultation, SNOMED CT adoption, and to start to interconnect telephony with our GP systems uh, to produce more integrated systems. Now, this was a plan which was slowly bumbling along as we tried to persuade people, and we were getting very slow uptake in a lot of areas. So we wanted to try and get uh, patients to have 24-hour access using an online self-service method. So we've been looking at ways of doing this, and we now have online consultations using things like Ask My GP and eConsult. Now, these have produced quite a lot of change within primary care because these have to be managed within the practice. Within these systems, there are automation red flag systems to direct patients to immediate care if they give symptoms that are suggestive of something which is um, life-threatening. But they also direct patients to um, information elsewhere that they may be able to find help from, but as well as being able to allow them to book appointments. Now, there's a lot of controversy going on about this type of systems because how practice manage this, because it does increase the access to primary care and how practices can adapt to that is going to require uh, a lot of um, thinking and reconfiguration, configurating practices. So we've been trying to signpost patients to the most appropriate care, which is obviously sometimes general practice, but we have a lot of uh, help from our pharmacists locally and get off also using the right person within the primary care team so that we've got uh, or have often got our first contact physiotherapist or our pharmacist can often help the patient first. And that's not always the case and that may need to be escalated to the GP, but trying to ensure that all members of the team can see the most appropriate person, getting person to the right, the person, the patient to the right person has been the way we've been trying to ensure these digital systems work. So now in April, we've had over half a million online consultations per week in April this year. Electronic prescribing has universally been rolled out and we're trying to move it also into secondary care. We've got video consultations about 27,000 uh, per week in April 2001. The amount of video consultations is slowly going down. Um, it's available everywhere, but actually people are either doing 
uh, phone calls with photos if needed or, or, or then changing that to face to face. But the video, the video consultations, which we massively used last March uh, and April, have started to reduce. We've got a lot of people working at home. We've had 40,000 laptops deployed across England. We try to ensure that not just the GP. So lots of familiar sounding experiences in England, what we've seen in Scotland. An increase in online consultations, fewer video consultations with patients compared to last year, but lots of telephone and a recent increase in face-to-face appointments. Lots of clinical photos to deal with, and a lot more remote working than ever before. But doesn't the move to online services disadvantage some patients, like the over 65s? So some of the myths that have come up is that a lot of over 65s are able to use the online services, which has been surprising to us. That's not to say that all over 65s can use them, and we recognise there's a large number of people who may be digitally excluded. But this is important to recognise that people over 65 are using it and we have to make sure that we enable them to use it. These are the new ways of working, which I think a year ago, none of us had much experience. I think the remote working, we've seen that being very useful for our shielding members of staff. We had a lot of pregnant members of staff who, towards their pregnancy, shielded at home. We have staff members who were perhaps having to shield because they had a family member who needed to shield. So remote working has really been helpful in ensuring that the practice kept going and kept practices going. It's not ideal for lots of things. The remote workers need to be supported. They need a, a check-in from lots of people. It, it's not ideal, but it has kept us going. Online meetings, I'm sure you're all zoomed out and there is fatigue with these meetings, but they have kept the communication going and also many meetings keeping our transportation time down to a minimum. So whereas before, if you were attending meetings outside the practice, you could leave us a whole afternoon. Now you can just do a, a quick meeting and then continue to do clinical work. And home working, well, it's worked for some people. It hasn't worked for everybody. And I think a lot of, I have to remember, a lot of members of our staff don't particularly have large homes. Uh, they may not be able to work from home uh, and may find home working very difficult. But for a lot of other people, it's been very uh, useful. Other areas that we are interested in is trying to do video consultations with more than one person. So it's been quite interesting to do, for instance, best interest meetings for people with learning disabilities, where we've been able to link the person with an advocate and ourselves to have a three-way or four-way meeting. And that's been quite interesting to get synchronous communication using video consultation. We've also started some uh, video group clinics around chronic disease, inviting people in to discuss diabetes or chronic uh, obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, And they have had mixed results, but generally well received by patients, not all patients it's suitable for. But um, there are ways of trying to um, help patients in a more effective way. So how do we build on this tech legacy? There's been benefits and challenges. Obviously, we've still got to ensure patients have choice. So they're not just given the digital route only. A lot of uh, our populations we serve are poor. They don't have access to these digital services. Uh, Also, they may not be tech literate. We are missing seeing patients face to face. I think that we will have a raft of misdiagnosis and late diagnosis, which we're having to address. We've also got the challenges of people worried, not seeking help because of concerns, as well as a catch up. We've got the huge catch up of 
waiting lists to deal with. And this will be a huge challenge for us for the next two or three years. We've had to protect the most vulnerable from COVID-19 and how we restore the NHS services to include everybody is going to be tricky. Ensure that it's not just the middle class people like ourselves have access, but all patients have access. Uh, and that will mean that we make sure that the digital pathways are inclusive and easy to use. We also need to make sure that we um, get our preventative programmes back up, back up going for those at risk. We've got the problem of supporting people with mental health issues, which are surfacing to be huge. We do need to strengthen our leadership and accountability. And we're also trying to ensure the quality of our data set so that we can make decisions based on good information. So in terms of recovery and restoration, what is it what we want to keep? Uh, I'm sure you've got your own ideas about that. Um, obviously, remote solutions, but it cannot just be for remote solutions. Triage of access requests, things like online e-consults uh, and Ask My GP, they have real benefits of directing patients, but they may get misled. So we have to ensure those systems have ways to catch all patients and their problems. Effective communication with patients, we're increasingly looking at trying to make sure that the patient is communicated back, particularly things like blood results coming back, making sure that the patient is not, it's not just left to the patient to actually contact us, that we ensure that we have a system to do that. And we're looking at ways of doing that, particularly around automation. We do want to keep electronic prescribing. It's been absolutely essential for us in primary care, and we really want that extended to secondary care. Um, online presence, uh, we have got some, been working on this and trying to provide guidance for practices to ensure that they have the best website possible. Uh, and some, we've got some good guidance on the future NHS workspace, which I'll give you details later on if you want to go on there uh, to have a look. And the digital primary care is well worth a look for things that we're doing in England. We are starting to increasingly have staff working across the primary care networks. For instance, our first contact physiotherapists and our social prescribers. Uh, and we need to ensure that they've got enough IT equipment to support these clinicians. They work across practices. In fact, these clinicians working across practices actually have really good ideas about how what other practices are doing well. And they've been invaluable source for us to actually um, pinch ideas from other people. Technology has played its part, but transformation has been the key. Uh, it's OK to have the technology. It's people in the practices like yourselves, like the nurses, the managers can see the potential of that technology and how it's going to work in your practice. That's the real key. So that's the end. Thank you very much for listening to me. This is just a run through of what's happened in England. Uh, I'm sure uh, and I know in Scotland you've had you know, a particular challenge and, and you've responded magnificently. And I have to thank everybody in your own practices for doing their share of shouldering the burden of COVID. Uh, and we're not through it yet, but uh, I really hope to, we will all get together, meet together again. OK, thank you very much. Thanks, David. So the digital front door provides an alternative way for patients to access their GP practices rather than trying to get through endlessly by phone. How much will this increase demand? And will it terminally overload an already struggling and underfunded system? Ramaya Matthew asked this question in the BMJ in May. And there's a link to that in the episode notes. Neil Kelly put this question to Matt. Good morning, Matt. Thank you very much. That's uh, a fascinating insight into uh, how you guys are coping um, in the South. I uh, was interested to read a comment piece in the BMJ at the weekend from Ramya Matthew, which really 
raised the access uh, and, and, and the floodgate of demand that's being opened um, by, by opening up digital approaches to, to general practice. And I just wonder how you're thinking that we, we tackle or, or deal, deal with some of that in terms of modulating that demand or, or, or just recognising that uh, we have to get on with it and deal with it. It's a really good question. It's a really interesting piece, actually. Uh, and there's a debate going on about whether you make total triage, everything total triage or not. And I think that's for the profession to decide. I, I personally would not like that solution. I think that it would be personally, I would like a solution where this is one way of managing it, that there are many routes for patients to contact the practice. The issue is predominantly around the weekends, I think because the weekends people are putting in large amounts of consultations, they've got time to fill those in, and the poor practices on a Monday are having to deal and manage that and spread that load over the week. And we haven't got a solution for that. One of the things we've been looking at is putting in resources on Sunday evening, trying to deal with that so that the Monday isn't quite as bad, but that's, we'd still need to look at the demand and manage that demand rather than just knee jerk to that. We are still trying to manage that by trying to get some more data and model it. David Cooper has spoken in a previous Snug podcast about his practice's extensive use of e-consults. And he asked if Scotland might benefit from a unified approach to the provision of online services. Um, yeah, I, I suppose there are things. So as we move down the kind of digital route, obviously different practices have done lots of different things. Um, and certainly in Scotland, even areas as such has done lots of different things. Is there any thoughts on do, do we need a kind of full national approach in Scotland? And I suppose if that's the case from the patient point of view, would that make it much easier um, for, for patients all over the country to be able to then um, understand how the change is coming because obviously we've had lots of resistance to a change for the digital first way. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? Certainly you need collaboration. I'm sure you need collaboration. I'm sure you've got that across Scotland. Uh, I, I think what I would say it's quite useful having sandpit practices where you can try things. I would recommend, uh, we're certainly trying to do this, is develop in England sandpit practices where you can, the practices are happy to try something and then give honest opinions about how things work. Uh, and I think um, particularly trying to get laptops, trying to get VDI, trying to get that, that that was needed a really central push to do that. Uh, and I don't think we'd have, and also to get the money out of government that required us, the data is really important to have the data. If you've got the data, you've got a chance of getting the resources. Uh, those are my personal opinion rather than necessary NHS The next workshop we're going to hear was hosted by Andrew Cowie, a GP in Dundee and the Deputy Chair of the SGPC, that's the Scottish GPs Committee. You may have heard him in our podcast from last September when he described the standards for GPIT that are being introduced in each board area. Andrew discussed the horribly named digital asynchronous consulting systems and why they may not be for all practices. We hear some feedback from David Cooper and Alex Flett, who both work in Grampian, and a lot of the practices up there have started to use e-consults and can describe their experiences. We also pick up some of Andrew's thoughts on the limited progress with e-prescribing in Scotland and also workload data collection. I certainly don't have to tell this audience that good IT is absolutely central to efficient working in complex environments. Um, good IT 
multiplies the effectiveness of scarce clinicians. We have zero prospect of adequate workforce anywhere in the UK in the immediate future on current projections. So investing in IT can make a massive difference. Um, our problems include the extreme complexity of the health and social care environment. Think of the many, many people who are involved both at the local level and at the national level. We've got huge variants. We've got problems with economy of scale in Scotland. We're, we aren't that big. And so that means that resources are sometimes a bit tight. Digital asynchronous consulting systems. Really, really terrible name. Um, uh, I'm utterly delighted by how bad it is um, and uh, enjoy using the acronym at every possibility. Um, so the SGPC position is that every GP practice that wants them should be able to have one. We believe that buying them nationally um, uh, 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 allows us to likely produce enough resources in a big enough market that the suppliers will allow us to add Scottish functionality. But on the other hand, that reduces flexibility. Um, and so we're involved in various meetings about that at the moment. Uh, use of any DAX system must be voluntary on a practice basis. That is our position. Um, you've heard uh, what's going on in England. Uh, I really am not sure the best thing to do here. We have people who at practices that swear they could not have got through the pandemic without their uh, e-consult or Ask My GP system. They found it incredibly valuable. Um, and they think, you know, we should be getting it Scottish specific, improved, implemented everywhere. But, you know, you will have heard from England about the, it's another lane on the GP motorway um, uh, and a lot of practice having difficulty with it. How much of this is implementation and the way practices are using it? Are some practices inherently less efficient? Are they doing it wrong? Or is it the practices that are already overwhelmed less able to implement change? I would really value your views on how we should take this forward. I am, um, yes, yeah, so we're huge users of uh, e-consult and um, possibly might be even slight victims of our own success, that we'll say. So um, uh, we, we've gone from kind of a thousand uh, consults uh, over three months last year to four and a half thousand over the same three months this year. Um, so using it extensively, I have to say it probably has been our, um, I, I'm of the opinion it's what's kept us working through um, the COVID pandemic. Um, it has um, allowed us to maintain a kind of probably 48 hour access to GP opinion, um, uh, rather than I know some of our colleagues that weren't using it quite as extensively are, are now into two or three weeks to actually get an interaction with a GP. Um, so we're slightly extending, but things are getting busy and busy as we see. But from a practice point of view, I absolutely can't, can't um, say enough positive about it. But we are now getting to the saturation point, and I totally get the point from uh, you, Andrew, that uh, did we do it well because we've implemented the change well and we've had many years to implement the change, or uh, yeah, and we're a well-organised uh, well, well practice. Might that not go so well in other places and other areas with other patient populations? Totally agree. But, uh, that's my opinion. I mean, I would say that moving even to things like telephone triage, um, where you can speak to a GP on the day, which you didn't used to have. I'm regularly getting people phoning up now about stuff that I would never have seen before. There is an enormous amount of unmet need out there. Um, uh, I was interested in the comment about a demand-led service. I mean, we are a demand-led service, um, but what we are discovering is that there is so far unlimited uh, demand out there. 
I mean, you know, we don't know where it stops. Um, we all used to joke about um, uh, old ladies would ask us to fix their tellies. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I've certainly had that on a house visit, you know, 10, 15 years ago, because we're available. We're there. People have needs. Um, uh, there may be alternatives, but we're the simplest people to get hold of. Um, and I do worry about making it easier to contact us while making other services harder to contact. You will be acutely aware there is no digital asynchronous consulting system for consultants. There is no, you cannot phone up social work and expect them to phone you the next day. You can, I mean, you know, the list of people you cannot contact on a day by day basis with an expectation of an expert um, opinion is near limitless. Basically, you've got general practice. I just had a, a few little points about our what we our experience in forests um, with these uh, asynchronous um, consultations has been. Um, quite a few patients uh, don't seem to regard it as a as a real consult, one might say, um, and actually that also goes for telephone and near me. Um, they seem they almost see it as an access tool to getting an appointment, um, and it's so much so that some of the consults that we've been getting have been quite limited in the content that they contain, meaning that you kind of think, well, I can't really deal with this in the way that I'd like to deal with it because I don't have the key facts. Um, E-Consult often it also uses this thing called a ask general advice, and it's really annoying because if the patient picks that, they just get very pathetic questions and therefore you're left with very minimal information to go on. Whereas if they picked a skin one, all the questions are there and they tend you tend to get a very much better thing. Um, the other kind of little problems that we've been having with it are there's a 24 hour sort of turnaround for whatever it is. Um, now, I know some practices use that as a like book an appointment, but we try to deal with it in a, on a, a separate, you know, try and deal with it properly. Um, but, you know, we've got to respond to them within 24 hours, whether they're concerned about the appearance of their toe, toenails or whether they've got asthma symptoms, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to shoehorn all of this work into this ultimately high priority. Um, we've also picked up a few what I might call avid users of the system that now seem to just drop in several times over a couple of weeks to ask about random stuff um, and and actually writing back to them and saying actually go and go to the pharmacy is is, is difficult and challenging to do that in a professional way um, the other just one one little point um, we've discovered that the system has a number of sort of red flag sort of detection things which i think patients much like when they try to get a signal out of us, they tend to up the ante with their symptoms and they think if they rack the sliders to the farthest position, they're guaranteed to get an appointment. But of course, all that happens is the system kicks them out and says, you know, call the surgery or go to A&E or whatever, and then it becomes a bit pointless. Electronic prescribing, this is huge. Um, now, this was, when we were negotiating the contract in 2017, um, electronic prescribing, improving the IT involved with prescribing was always, you know, this is something been banging on for at least five or six years. Um, we believed that a pharmacy, you know, one of our problems was that uh, budgets and resources were not aligned. 
the workload of prescribing fell on GPs, the budget um, lay with other areas. People were never going to be investing in or had not been investing in electronic prescribing. Um, and we believe that until boards had the work to do, they wouldn't you know, be interested in investing to make prescribing easier and more efficient. That's partially true, but we, you know, it has taken a lot longer than we thought. There has been enormous resistance from community pharmacy. Um, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, their business model is absolutely predicated on uh, on giving people prescriptions. Um, uh, you know, uh, they are very vulnerable to an, to a remote system. You know, an Amazon for pharmacy. Um, once you get electronic prescribing, and that has consequences. And because nobody attempted to address those concerns, they just said no, which is entirely reasonable. If your contract is dependent on something and someone's going to take that away from you, I can see the resistance. They have finally started addressing that, attempting to use community pharmacy in different ways, allow them to exist in different ways. Um, and we've now got quite good support from CPS. Um, it's difficult to know. We've had multiple false starts for electronic prescribing. I've been to so many meetings where the, you know, they've been looking to spec it out. What do we need? What can we do? Blah, blah, blah. That goes away and nothing happens. Um, I do believe there is more clout behind developing electronic prescribing system at the moment. But, you know, how how much clout, how whether this one is going to progress when so many other ones haven't, um, even though it's so transparently vital, I cannot tell you. Okay, workload data for any GPs out there, we absolutely need to know what work you are doing. Now, if you're, the hairs on the back of your neck are not going up when someone says that, um, uh, you know, of course, this is terrifying. Um, uh, it is, uh, you know, is this going to turn into a call center where we're micromanaged? I notice you're taking seven minutes for, to go to the toilet, whereas GPA is only taking five. Um, I notice that the average time you're spending with a patient is 11 minutes, whereas GPB it's nine. How can you cut that down? Um, or maybe you're only spending nine minutes with a patient. It should be 11. How can you put it up to 11? So we're, we're really worried. I've always been worried about uh, data on workload. Um, uh, and it's incredibly difficult to collect in a meaningful way. NHS Lothian, I don't know whether anyone's from NHS Lothian here, doing some really good work at the LMC level to try and gather data. I think Glasgow are now starting to do this. Um, in England, um, GPs have contractually been told to record their data in a consistent manner. You, you just got to do it. And then they suck all that out and they're able to say what's going on. Why should we do this? The reason why we should do this is because right now, secondary care have huge amounts of evidence, particularly the emergency departments. And every meeting you go to um, with Scottish government, uh, they've got limited cash. And they're saying, well, look at the waiting lists in orthopedics. Of course, we should put money into orthopedics. Look at the workload increase at ED. Um, of course, we should put money into ED. Um, what about general practice? Well, we hear a lot of anecdotes that you guys are pretty miserable. Um, but have you got any data? Well, no. You know, so you're at the back of the queue. So this is why I feel we need data despite the risks, but delighted to hear from people about their views. Thanks a lot to both Matt and Andrew for allowing us to share their thoughts with you and, uh, as always, your comments on anything you've heard would be most welcome. If you paid close attention, you might just have noticed that both of our speakers covered fairly similar themes from their slightly different perspectives. 
noting that there have been many benefits from our increased use of digital GP services, and also some very real problems, including not knowing how great the demand for healthcare will ultimately be. It's in our best interests to be able to provide data on our workload, to be able to plan and organise provision of care in the best ways possible. Thanks for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it and gained some food for thought, and we do hope you'll join us again next time. Cheers. Thank you.